Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you listen to Phone Tree yesterday, and I hope you do on a regular basis, we're going to be in Acts 4 and 5 this morning. I'm going to take two sections of Scripture that have similar issues with them and similar consequences that Peter and John are facing and tie them together. And so we're going to be in the Word a lot. He had sermon notes from last week. If you hadn't or didn't get them filled in, just shot us a note, email. Be happy to do that for you. Next Sunday morning, you'll get sermon notes again that will have some of these thoughts in it and finish this section. And so I'm going to do more of a teaching time this Sunday and next Sunday. If you've not been with us before, we normally take a section and walk through it and all the points that come out of it. Last Sunday, today, and next Sunday, we're going to walk through four and five and Every so often, periodically, there's some really powerful points that are in these two sections of Scripture that I want to spend some time with. And so instead of a one, two, three, point A, B, and C that all tie in together, just a different context. I want to begin again in uh, where we left off last week so that you can see what happened in chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man crippled from birth was being carried into the temple gate called Beautiful. It was there every day, chapter 3 and 4, I'm sorry, I said 4 and 5. It was there every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him as John did, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why, do you, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power and godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of your fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. Verse 15, and then you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you now see has been made strong. In Jesus' name and the faith that came through him has made him complete, healing him as you all now can see. Last Sunday morning, I finished in this particular context. It was interesting because in this sermon and last Sunday, or this service and last, the second service, I finished at a little different places. I want to get back to where we were just a moment ago in communion. One of the things you see as a response to freedom physically is this man's ability to give praise. And as Justin began this morning saying that very thought, when we come into the presence of Almighty God, and we recognize what he has done, it doesn't have to be manufactured or manipulated. When I realize what I was outside of Christ and what he's done in my life now, I want to express that. It doesn't always have to be walking and leaping and jumping and praising God, but a real expression of my heart. When I hold these elements in my hand and recognize that my sin has been totally forgiven, completely wiped out, when I receive Jesus as my Savior, I am a brand new creature in Christ. That's incredible. And so it causes me to not only want to reflect on what it is that God has done in my life, but it causes me to want to express that. 
I want my face to show it. I want my heart to show it. I want my life to show it. And what you'll see and what you see in this context here is exactly what took place. This man, when he recognized and realized that his life had just been changed dramatically physically, he responded to that. And you and I, when we recognize that our lives have been changed spiritually and eternally, we want to respond to that. We want to praise God with everything we have. You'll also notice in this section of Scripture that it drew a crowd. People responded to that. People recognized the change has taken place. And I used as an example last week of the opportunity for every single one of us who've been changed by Christ to know beyond the shadow of a doubt our lives count for something. And they mean something when there's a change that's taken place to those that are trying to figure out what Christianity is all about. And because of our relationship with God, the smile on our face, the joy in our heart, the freedom that we have in Jesus, the life that I now live in Him, that's attractive to people. They want to know that Christianity makes a difference. They want to know that because of Jesus, I am different. And you and I, like this man, have the opportunity to see the power of a changed life. And people respond to that. And people recognize that now, because of Jesus, I'm different. Now, in his case, it was obvious. He was been lame for 40 years, you'll see in his context of Scripture. And now he's walking. That's huge. That's obviously a noticeable difference. But for a lot of us in the room, for those who knew us before Jesus and know us now, it also, for many of us, is a very noticeable difference as to the changes Christ has made in our lives. Now, not everyone is thrilled with Peter's sermon. He gives one in the rest of chapter 3. And not everyone responds positively. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the priest and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching in the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in that. They seized Peter and John. Because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or in what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today because of an act of kindness to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then you need to know this, you and all of the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, he as in Jesus the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Since they could see the man who had been with them standing there, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they confirmed together, what are we going to do with these men? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows what they have done in this outstanding miracle, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we've got to warn these men not to speak any longer in his name. And he called them again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, Just for yourselves, whether it's right in God's sight for, to obey you rather than God, but we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
After further threats, they let him go. Couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. And the man that was miraculously healed, he was 40 years old. You're going to see that there are a number of pieces of Scripture that obviously stand out in this. Peter and John are now facing what Jesus predicted was going to happen. It's one thing for him to say, him as in Jesus, to say, look, not everybody's going to like the message that I proclaim. Not everyone's going to like you because of that. Not everyone's going to respond positively. It's one thing to hear that. It's another thing to live it out. It's one thing like Peter to say, Lord, even if everybody denies you, I guarantee you I won't. And then all of a sudden when that moment comes, he denies them three times, denying that he ever even knew the man. It's one thing to know it, understand it. It's another thing to live it out. Now, this Peter, who just a few months or weeks or days before this, denied he ever knew Christ, is now standing his ground. Again, when the power of the Spirit of God lands on an individual, everything changes. My courage, my view of life, my willingness to take my stand, my willingness to do whatever's necessary to present the gospel changes. And when you take time to read the Peter or see the Peter in the Gospels and the Peter in the book of Acts, you recognize that the Spirit of God does more than just fill a person at the moment. It gives them courage to face every single challenge of life. Here they are in this moment, seeing what Jesus predicted was going to happen and dealing with persecution. What I love that I pointed out at the end of the message last Sunday morning is what happens in verse 4 of chapter 4. But many heard the message and believed and so the number of men grew to about 5,000. How fascinating in the middle of those difficult circumstances is God's blessing. I cannot say that enough. And we finished last Sunday with that thought. What you have to look for every once in a while, and I'm guarantee you and guaranteeing you it's there. In the middle of difficult moments, look for the blessings. It may not be rescued. It may not be an angel showing up. It may not be the miraculous take place. It may just simply be somebody there to walk with you, somebody there to pray for you, somebody there to be there for your encouragement. When you're walking through deep valleys, don't only see the darkness. Recognize the blessings of God around you. It may be one friend who, when everyone else abandoned you, is always there. It may be that moment in time when God speaks as clear and as loud as you've ever heard, when you feel like you've been in darkness for days on end. You cannot miss that moment when those first three verses or those first few verses take place, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of that context, God just tucks in verse 4. And I think he tucks it in with a neon sign saying, don't miss this. Don't miss that moment in the midst of all of the darkness that you may be facing right now incredible blessing that I want to share with you. I said to you last Sunday morning, you've got to memorize verse 12. It's an incredible verse. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given by which mankind must be saved. And every time someone says to you, there's a number of ways to God, we're all serving the same God. Anybody who wants to gets to heaven. I grew up in universalism, which, hey, do your best. We're all going to heaven anyhow. Paul or Peter clearly reminds us salvation is found in no one else but in Christ alone. Not because you sit in church, not because you go to church, not because you live in a Christian nation, not because you take communion, not because you don't swear, not, and the list is endless. Salvation is found in no one else but Christ alone. And never forget that. Verse 13, word ordinary, ordinary unschooled men, I think is incredibly important. I don't want to overlook it. These men really were ordinary people. 
What you love in this context and all the way through the New Testament is how God delights in using the ordinary. For a number of reasons. One is so that we depend on him more than our abilities. And secondly, so he gets the glory for the accomplishment and the victory, not us. One of my favorite verses is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And write it somewhere along that section of Scripture by verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 to 31. It simply says this. God delights in using the weak things of the world to confound the wise. God delights in using the weak things of the world to confound the strong. God delights in using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God gets a kick out of using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. So often we think, God can't use me. I've been a mess. My life's a mess. I don't do this. I can't do that. I can never, when the list is endless of the things we say we can't do, all I'm saying to you out of this context of Scripture is never, ever underestimate God's ability to use your life. It may not be in the public square. It may not be in the public arena. It may not be on a stage like this. Never underestimate God's ability to use you. God delights in taking what you and I think are small things and offering to him and seeing him multiply them in incredible ways. All he simply asks is, give it to me. Let me use it. I grew up in YFC campus life. That's where I got my spiritual roots and depth. Loved my church, but I really was heavily involved in campus life, Youth for Christ. And Murph, my leader, constantly put this phrase in her mind. God isn't interested in your ability as much as your availability. Some people are incredibly gifted, unbelievably gifted, and that's awesome. Sometimes we think if we're not there or not that gifted, God can't use us. And I love how he points this out. God delights in using the ordinary to do the extraordinary. Don't ever, ever underestimate God's ability to do that. And obviously, again, the power of a changed life you see in verse 14. They couldn't deny what they had seen and what had taken place. You obviously heard me read the rest of the verses in 15 to 22, how they ordered the man, they commanded him not to speak. Peter has to respond to that and say, I I understand. We have to decide what we're going to do, what's right in your eyes or in God's. I just need you to know we're going to do what's right in God's eyes. What you're going to see in the next few moments as we read chapter 5 is the fact that difficulties can either cause us to crumble or deepen our resolve and our determination. Conflict forces us to clarify what we believe. And sometimes all the meaningless stuff, the thing that we think is so important, all of a sudden in the middle of difficult times really isn't that important. That's why James 1 says, look, don't run from trouble. Because in the middle of all that, God can teach you some incredible things if you'll let him. We're going to talk about that in a moment. What I wanted to see is verse 18 for a moment when it says they commanded them not to talk. They commanded them not to talk. The fear of being exposed, these people in the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the reason they did that, to be honest with you, is a couple of reasons. One, I think, is the fear of being exposed for the phonies they were. The Sanhedrin had no power and they knew it. So they tried to use fear and intimidation to keep Peter and John quiet. I say that for this reason. Satan will do the same to you. When you decide you want to take a stand for Jesus, when you decide you want to declare your faith, when you decide in the midst of all the things that are going on in this nation, I cannot stay silent. 
Satan will try to get you to do that. Intimidates you for a number of reasons. You do that, you could lose your job. You declare your faith, you could lose your job. You agree with same-sex marriage, you could lose your job. And sometimes you and I have to decide, like Peter and John, look, I get it, I understand it, I know what it could cost me, but on this case, in this situation, I have got to stand my ground. Put it in today's context of a frightened little girl who's told to not tell about abuse by the abuser, trying to keep her quiet by saying he'll hurt her, being held hostage by the truth. And wrongdoer even blames someone else for exposing it. Look, if there's garbage in the middle of the floor of a dark room, the problem isn't the one who turned the light on. The problem is the garbage. Some may have a hard time being honest about their inadequacies and problems because they're afraid that people will find out they've not been what they say they have been, as you'll see in chapter 5. And the Pharisees were desperately afraid of that. Jesus said to them, look, you're washed the outside of the cup. The inside's filthy. I want to ask you a question, and don't tell me it's anybody you know but somebody you've heard of. You ever notice how every once in a while you'll see someone's home that is immaculate? Everything about it is perfect. Everything about it is pristine. Everything about the outside and the inside is perfect. But the lies on the inside are a mess. And sometimes we spend so much time on the outside and never really deal with the inside. Now, I know none of you have ever been like that, but I know you've got to know somebody where everything is so perfect on the outside, everything looks so good, but the inside is a mess. And yet somehow in our context, in, in our American society, we were really concerned about the outside and not the inside. So we hear a verse like that when Jesus, and he said it on a number of occasions to the Pharisees, you wash the outside of the cup, the inside's filthy, and we go, that's right, they sure do that. Or most of the time, we don't even know why he's saying it to them because we don't even know who the Sadducees are. But every once in a while, observe life. And look for that one who everything on the outside looks so pristine and so good. But the inside's empty. Don't be fooled by what you see on the outside. I hope it's none of you who look perfect today but inside you're a wreck because it doesn't have to be that way. The religious leaders were afraid of being exposed and Peter and John said, look, whatever is right in God's eyes, that's what we have to do. You be the judges. We cannot help. And I love that phrase, which is really the motivation to evangelism. I just cannot help but sharing what I've learned. I cannot help but talking about Jesus. My life has changed. God has made me a new creature in him. I can't help but that. What I love about Peter and John, especially Peter who's a spokesperson, is he made a decision based on what was right and not what was popular. But what you love about him is the respect that he gives. Later on, and you can write it down somewhere in 1 Peter chapter 2, he's going to say things like this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether the emperor or supreme authority or the governors who are sent to punish those who do wrong. Live as free men, but never use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Show proper respect for everyone. Peter's going to live that out. He's also going to say, look, I need you to know there's a higher standard that I'm accountable to. 
And so I get all of those verses, and I get this section of Scripture. We just need to remember, every once in a while, God's going to call us to do some things that may not fit into that context of Romans 13, obey the government. 1 Peter 2, obey your leaders. Hebrews 13, obey those in authority over you. When you look at what really is at stake... You have to decide, if I have heard from God, and I know he's telling me to take a stand, then regardless of what I know it's going to cost me, I'm going to take a stand. And sometimes we look at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and obey your leaders and obey those in authority over you, and we look at all of that, and we think, well, then I can't say anything. I've got to follow along. I'm like sheep going to the slaughter. You've got to back up enough in Scripture to see the broader context. Peter and John didn't obey he's going to write later to do that and do it with respect but he didn't obey he knew there was a higher calling jesus didn't obey the jewish laws neither did daniel obey the king's edict or shadrach meshach and abednego in the old testament there are times in life when you have to go against authority especially when the person in authority is abusing their power hebrews 13 for example it says obey your leaders in the church but sometimes you can't do that when pastors or church leaders have abused their position. Men who abuse their wives and then expect them to submit to, to them as the leader of the house in Ephesians 5. How do they put those two together? There are times when you need to take a stand for what you know is right. I've had women throughout all of my ministry life say, look, I get what Ephesians 5 says. Submit to authority, submit to my husband, but this is what he's doing. Does this and this go together? And the answer is no. No. There are times when you have to stand up to authority, especially when God calls you to a higher level to expose the truth. Y'all are savvy enough to know that in Pennsylvania, the governor has refused to sign the edict or go against the judge's ruling, and now same-sex marriage is available in Pennsylvania as well, and it's just a list of things, one of the many things that are going to happen over the next number of years. I'm just telling you, we in America, we believers in Christ, are going to come to a point where we've got to take a stand on a number of issues, knowing I get Hebrews 13, I understand 1 Peter 2, I understand Hebrews or uh, Romans 13. But when I know and I am absolutely convinced that God is calling me at a higher level of authority, I can't stay silent. There are a lot of ways to respond. Writing your senators, writing to the governor. I've called the governor's office. I mean, the list is endless of ways to respond. Doing it with respect, but saying enough is enough. And who knows what 2016 is going to bring. I doubt if it'll get better. Now, it's not a prophecy. I just doubt if it's going to get better. And we have to decide where enough is enough. There are times in your life when you've got to decide who you're going to serve. The truth or a lie or the God of people's opinions. Now, if you're going to take a stand, you need to understand the price. You better know who you are. You better know whose you are. And you better make sure you're being led by the Spirit of Almighty God. Peter and John are going to go through an enormous amount of difficulty over the next few moments. They're going to be put in jail. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be flogged in chapter 5. And what they're going to find out is that they've got to figure out what's really important and what isn't. What do I need to let go of and what do I have to have? What can I live without? What am I absolutely convicted to? What am I absolutely committed to? What am I willing to live for and what am I ultimately willing to die for? 
Take some time today or tomorrow or sometime this week to read Acts chapter 5, as I asked you to yesterday, and you're going to find them again before the Sanhedrin. And this time, it's not just simply a warning, don't do what I said. They're put in jail. What's fascinating about that is that an angel comes to them while they're in jail and says, I want you to go back out and share the truth again. They do, and they're back in jail. And now not only are they rebuked, they're beaten and flogged. Most of us would never understand what that would look like, but if you read the Gospels enough and see what it took out of Jesus, you'll understand that a flogging is not just simply a tongue lashing. It takes its toll on your body. What you'll find in these guys is when things get tough and heat gets turned up in life, they're really going to figure out what matters and what doesn't. One of the things that go away <laughs> pretty quick in the life of the disciples is the opinion of people as opposed to what God commanded. In this case, the uh, Sanhedrin and the Sadducees are the opinion of people, the religious system of their day, which has the power to fire you, find you, or ostracize you. And for you, it may be kids at school. It may be people at work. In this case, it could have cost them their lives. But they were willing to take their stand and do what they knew was right. Because it wasn't the approval of people or the desire to fit in. i got to believe they wanted to have approval. i got to believe they wanted to fit in. But they knew there was something more important than that. The second thing that didn't seem to matter to the disciples here is comfort, security, and freedom. Like approval, we all want those things. Verse 19 and 20 of chapter 5, the angel, or in the middle of the night, the angel comes, opens the doors, and sends them out and says, Now I want you to go and stand in the temple courts, and I want to tell the people all about this new life. Essentially, the angel was saying, Look, I want you to go back to the place you got in trouble before, and I want you to say the same things that got you in jail to begin with. Now, had I been Peter, I would have just simply said, Let's make a deal. If we go back and do what we said we have done and what you tell us now to do, we're going to end up back in jail anyhow, and you're going to come back and have to get us out again. So let's just save a trip and not say or anything. Peter doesn't do that. They do exactly what the angel said, and they go back. What's fascinating about this is what the angel says to them to do. Share the whole truth. The full message of the gospel. I think he said that for a number of reasons. One is to tell the truth, give it to them straight. I think that when approval, comfort, security are at stake, it's very, very easy to compromise. If talking about signs, wonders, and speaking in tongues and miracles in a spirit-filled life really bothers some people, then many pastors just won't talk about it. If talking about the consequences of sin makes people uncomfortable, many pastors won't share it. If talking about hell makes people nervous, some churches don't even talk about it. Let's just talk about heaven. If talking about holiness and living the Christian life every day makes people nervous, then don't talk. As long as they're saved, that's enough. And none of that is true. And that's why the angel said to them, look, it may cost you everything, but share and tell the whole message. They did, and they ended up back in jail. And in verse 40, they're beaten severely. But they decided that it was more important to obey God rather than men. We have to decide the same. And we have to make some really hard decisions about what we believe is true and the price that we're willing to pay for that truth. Thousands have laid down their lives for Christianity. And they were absolutely certain of the cause. And they took a stand knowing it could cost them everything. 
And I think every once in a while, every one of us in our comfortable settings, in our really comfortable homes, in our comfortable churches, in our comfortable ministries like I am in, need to be really honest about the price we're willing to pay for what we know is true. Do you ever wonder what caused them to do that? I mean, they knew what it was going to cost them. They've already been in jail once. Now here they are again. And they know that if they continue to violate that, it could cost them physically floggings and beatings in their life. Do you ever wonder what it is that caused them to have that kind of courage? They weren't superhuman. They were like us. They wanted to fit in. They wanted comfort. They wanted to live. But at the core of their being, they valued something more. At the very core of their being, they had been captured by someone for whom they were willing to lay down everything. It wasn't the angel who would rescue them because later he doesn't show up. And he doesn't show up for Stephen and he certainly didn't show up all the time for Paul. Paul was beaten and shipwrecked and abandoned and lost at sea. It wasn't that they would always see healing. They always didn't. Paul could heal. Didn't see it happen in every case, even for himself. If the confidence they had to face the tensions and difficulties and challenges of life were dependent on God always sending an angel or always healing or whether or not they had enough faith, they're going to be disillusioned. So what did they hold on to? What did they know for sure when things got difficult? When the angel didn't come? When healing didn't arrive? The answer is in verse 30 of chapter 5. They held on to Christ. They were absolutely committed to him. What mattered most to them was not life, was not security, was not all the things that he provided. What strength came to them was what they could do in the name of Jesus and believing that he would be there no matter what. That if this life took life from them, they would see Jesus face to face. And so it's a win-win all the way around. If I take my stand and know I'm ostracized and know that people don't like me and know that I lose my job and know that I could lose my life, it really doesn't matter because when I leave this world, I see Jesus face to face. What are they going to take from you? Matter of fact, when Paul's confronted with the same thing years from now in his ministry life, he said, look, I honestly been debating whether I want to stay here or not or whether I want to go to heaven and see God. So if you stone me and kill me, you'll have already made up my mind for me. I'm okay with that. How do you handle a Paul like that? Who said, my life's not my own. I'm in Christ and I'm okay with that. And I'm willing to stake it all for the name of Jesus. This isn't a history book. It's a story of people like you and I who are absolutely committed to Christ no matter what. And they're going to live it out no matter what. And they know the cost and they're willing to count the cost and they're willing to serve him with everything they have. came through faith in Christ. Through a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up to the king who said, I'm going I'm to burn you in a fire. I said, okay. We're okay with that. If you do, we, we're, we're going to be rescued. And even if we don't, we're still going to obey God. Paul, who said, I've been wrestling with it to begin with, so you just ended the discussion and I go to see Jesus. For many of us in the room, life's going to hand us some really difficult moments. Things we don't understand, things that don't make sense, and some really tough experiences. The best advice I could give you is go to the end of Jim Dobson's book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. After two or three hundred pages of issues and circumstances and missionaries who were killed and people who took a stand and it cost them their life, 
who weren't rescued, who didn't have an angel taking them out of prison, who weren't healed, who died a painful death. He says, I know you're looking for a great conclusion. I know you're looking for a great answer. But he said, I'm just continuing to go back to Scripture. Where God says, look, I, I love you, but I'm not always going to parade my situations and circumstances in front of you to get your approval. I just need you to know that I am in charge. And you have to decide if you trust me or you don't. But somewhere in the midst of all the uncertainties and difficulties of life, I have to decide, do I trust him or not? Am I willing to give my all to him, knowing it could cost me everything? Because I trust him implicitly. And somewhere in the middle of life, most of the time, he says, before difficulty arrives, I have to separate my understanding of what God does for my belief in who he is. Because I won't always understand what he does, but I will always know he is who he says he is. And when life is over, I get to see him face to face. Not a history book. It is a story of people who took a stand, cost them everything, but had a bigger calling than that, and were willing to say, if it costs me everything, I'm committing my life to Christ. Can you imagine if that was true of all of us who sit in churches like ours every single Sunday morning? who said, I'm going to take a stand for Christ. The power of a changed life could change the world. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so powerful. And I'm so delighted that we can share it today and not see it as just a history book. But an opportunity to understand the lessons that we can learn and the impact that it can have on all of us if we're willing to read it, listen to it, learn from it, and be obedient to it. A lot of us are facing challenges at work. Some are ostracized from their family because of their faith in Christ. Some are really alone at work, feeling like they're, on, they're the only believer on the planet, and certainly where they are serving in the workplace. Some feel it from their family. And so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you will give us courage to be so committed to you that no matter what, we will obey you and we will serve you and we will follow you and we will trust you. Give us this kind of courage to live this kind of life. Ordinary people, just like us, who serve an extraordinary God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Next Sunday morning, we're going to wrap up four and five.